Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Good morning, church. How are you this morning? Blessed. Amen. Okay, very good. We're going to be studying the beginning of the end of Colossians. We're at the beginning of chapter 4. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Read with me what Paul has written beginning with verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord, amen? Amen. I want you to imagine that your next few words to your loved ones will be your final words to them before you leave them behind. If that were the case, what would you say? Would you choose your words carefully? Would you want to make sure those words count? Would you invest those few final words on matters of great importance or little importance? The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. He's writing to a church in a city called Colossae. It's been after three missionary journeys Paul has been on. He has lived a full life of gospel ministry. He has given himself wholly to doing the Lord's work. He's now imprisoned because he has given himself to the Lord's work. Uh, He's probably in Rome probably waiting to be executed. And as he's sitting in chains in Rome, anticipating whether that day or the next day might be his final day, he's thinking about these Christians in Colossae. He's writing this letter. And he knows that these words that he's writing to them will be the last words they read from him. And as he's concluding the letter at this point, he knows that these final words are truly the final words of the final words. So they're like the final burst of instructions. They're the the final salvo of encouragements. And Paul saves in some sense the best for last. For Paul, these final encouragements, these final instructions are important instructions. As we've kind of preached through, studied through uh, the letter to the Colossians, I really think that in Colossians, as Christians today, we see Paul describing, unpacking for us what true Christian faith really looks like. And so now as he's drawing this letter to a close, Paul wants 
uh, those Christians to see that, amongst other things, true Christian faith is faith that speaks. It speaks to God in prayer, and it speaks to outsiders in wisdom. So here, Paul gives the Colossians these two concluding commands. First, he commands them to persevere in prayer. Let's read again verses 2 through 4 quickly. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of a Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul begins his conclusion with three whole verses on prayer. As he draws this letter to a close, Paul doesn't just kind of say with a passing voice, oh, hey guys, don't forget to pray. It's important and stuff. That's not what he says. Because for Paul, prayer is not an afterthought. He's very specific in terms of how he wants the Colossians to pray. If you really want to learn how to pray as a Christian, then one great place to go is Paul's prayers in his letters. There you can learn what it looks like to pray as a seasoned and a mature Christian. And when we look at Paul's prayers and Paul's letters, one of the things that we see over and over is that true Christian prayers have truly Christian priorities. So in this passage and in this prayer, first we see that true Christian prayer is prayer that continues. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now again, Paul could have just said to them, don't forget to pray. Or he could have just used a one-word imperative, pray, and then moved on to the next thing. And if his motivation was just to remind them to pray, that might have been enough. But his purposes here go beyond that. His purposes extend to encouraging them how to pray, why to pray. So to begin with, the main verb that Paul uses in this first command is not actually the verb pray. The main verb that he uses in this sentence is actually the verb proskartereo. It's a Greek word that's made up of two words. The first word has this meaning of to continue in something without wavering. And the second word that's added to it is a preposition which when added to that first word, has, has the purpose of like intensifying the meaning. So as if it wasn't enough to say, continue in this thing without wavering, he intensifies that word. Persist in it. Busy yourself with this. Be devoted to it. Hold fast to it. What are some things in your life that you are devoted to? What are some things in your life that you hold fast to? What is it that this verb modifies? What is Paul calling the Colossians to hold fast to? He's calling them to hold fast to prayer, to persevere in prayer. That's why our English Bibles say things like continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Persevere in prayer. Of all the things in the Christian life, that Paul could encourage the Colossians to busy themselves with, at this point in the letter, I think it's instructive that he uses this occasion to encourage them to busy themselves with prayer. 
Now, this like encouragement from Paul isn't unique to the Colossians. All throughout his letters, we see this encouragement to the various Christians and the various churches. To the church in Rome, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. In Ephesians, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we should ask ourselves, as you know, modern readers of the text, what does it mean for our prayer to continue like this? What does it mean for our prayer to persevere? Well, first, I think it can mean that we are to adopt like a kind of posture of prayer. So I was studying and preparing. I ran across a quote by um, a Quaker named Thomas Kelly, who in the past uh, wrote a work on devotion and prayer, and he wrote this. He said, There is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. Does that make sense? I I think that's one way in which we can accomplish what Paul means to pray continually. But second... Paul can also mean that we regularly devote ourselves to prayer to the exclusion of devoting ourselves to other things. And I think that that second type of prayer is more of what Paul has in mind in this passage. I think we should acknowledge that one doesn't rule out the other. Amen? But prayer where we devote our whole selves and our whole attention to speaking to God, I think is what Paul is talking about. Consider Jesus. Mark tells us, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he, what did he do? Prayed. This was an ongoing, kind of continual part of Jesus' earthly life. Regular, devoted communion with his Father. Daily dependence. Now, after Jesus is crucified, he is buried, he's raised... He appears to his disciples. He gives the great commission. He ascends into heaven. What is the very first thing that his disciples and loved ones give themselves to? Acts chapter 1. All all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. His family and his closest disciples. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see that the early church follows this example. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Then we look at Acts chapter 6, right? The church is growing. People are getting saved. They're coming to know the Lord. We read that, you know, and many were being added to their numbers daily. So much so that as the church was growing, so were the ministry needs inside of the church. And the 12 apostles, you know, come to all the rest of the disciples and they say, hey, brothers, like, we're, we're encumbered with these ministry needs. We can't be spending all of our time feeding the poor, feeding the needy, feeding the widows, because we need to devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry, the ministry of the word. They, so they thought prayer was of the utmost importance, right up there with the ministry of the word. So over and over and over, throughout scripture, throughout the history of the church, we see the people of God investing 
precious time to pray, to give him their full, undivided hearts, minds, and attention. Now, can we just acknowledge something? I think there's a sense in which busying ourselves with prayer precludes us from busying ourselves with anything else. How many of you have felt that tension in your life as a Christian? Think back to the beginning of the letter. Paul begins this letter by commending the Colossians. He tells them that he's encouraged that they have been uh, exhibiting Christian fruit in the forms of faith, love, and hope. They're demonstrating Christian virtue. Uh, They're demonstrating the fruit of real conversion. And here's the thing. You can go about your daily life. You can go to work and carry out your duties at your job, or you can clean the house and cook meals or go grocery shopping. You can do the things that you need to do while still practicing those Christian virtues, right? Practicing faith, love, and hope don't stop you from going to work or going to sleep or so on and so forth, right? But to get quiet before the Lord and to pray to Him, well, that requires interrupting everything, doesn't it? Prayer is of such a nature that to busy yourself with it means almost by definition not busying yourself with other things. And to busy yourself with other things means, almost by definition, not busying yourself with prayer. And how many of us would agree that life is pretty busy? Am I the only one? The reformer Martin Luther once wrote, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. When we regularly busy ourselves with prayer, church, our actions are speaking certain convictions to God. Our actions are are saying these kinds of things. The most important thing I can do is call upon your name. The most important thing I can do is draw upon your might. There's no need in my life that is more pressing than calling upon your name, than spending time with you. I don't mean that in an ultra-pious sense. I mean that in terms of an expression of total dependence. I need you, Lord. So prayer is like this curious activity where we can't actually work on the things that we're praying for because we're occupied praying that God would work on them for us. Amen? So in this way, prayer is this act of radical reliance where we wait on God to move, where we kind of defer to him the prerogative to act. Nothing says, Lord, I need you above all else more than persevering in prayer. That is why Jesus woke up before it was light out. He went to a solitary place and he drew near to his father. Conversely, nothing says, Lord, I got this, I'm really okay on my own, more than putting off prayer. E.M. Bounds was a Methodist minister in the 1800s, and he wrote this in a magnificent work that he did on prayer. He says, the little estimate we put on prayer is evident from the little time that we give to it. Are you persevering in prayer? It was my birthday this week. Did you know that? Thanks. I'm at the age now where it's kind of like, ah. 
So I'm 42, full disclosure. I came on staff here when I was 32. So I've been ministering full-time here at Hope Chapel for just about 10 years now. Can't believe it. Don't know how that happened. I blinked and it went by. And in that time, I have had people ask me many of the same questions over and over again. One of those questions uh, goes like this. Mike, how is it that I discover God's will for my life? How many of you have ever wondered what God's will is for your life? It's a secret thing that you've got to kind of somehow peek through the veil and find. You know what my answer is? Pray. If you want God's will for your life, pray. Well, okay, but how will I know when I find it? You know, how will I know that God has really revealed it to me? And I'll say, pray. Not so that you'll find God's will, but so that you will be in God's will. When we pray, we are in God's will. Paul says to the Thessalonians, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Church, regular devotion to prayer is not something that we do to kind of level up in the Christian life. Uh, It is the air that we breathe as we grow in constant conformity and obedience to our Lord Jesus. I'm going to teach you something that is easy to remember. Are you ready? You ready? Prayer is like air. Can you remember that? Prayer is like air. Without prayer, you can't even live the Christian life, let alone level up in it. If I kind of estimate myself to be spiritually mature, to be a strong Christian, but I do not persevere in prayer, then I have overestimated myself. Prayer that continues, prayer that perseveres, is not the mark of a super-Christian. It's the mark of a healthy Christian. If your life is not regularly occupied in prayer, then something needs to be diagnosed. Something needs to be examined. It's probably an indicator that deep down inside, you don't really believe that it is God who is at work in your life or that it is God who secures your victories, or that it is God who you can trust in all things, or that it is God whose purposes are supreme, or that it is God's power and not your ability which sustains your life, your family, or your career. Friends, continue in prayer. Continue in prayer. And as you set out to continue in prayer, I want to give you this encouragement. Even for the best of us, there comes times when prayer seems unproductive and pointless and to penetrate no further than the walls of the room in which we pray. How many of us have ever felt like that? At such a time, the remedy is not to stop, but to go on praying. For in those who pray, spiritual dryness cannot last. God has made prayer that way. <clears throat> Next true Christian prayer is prayer that watches He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So prayer is not only necessary, it is also urgent. The word that Paul uses here, it's translated watchful in our Bibles, um, can mean stay awake. Is staying awake important for praying? 
How many of us have learned that by experience? <laughs> Obviously, being awake is a necessary precondition for prayer. Um, we should pray when we aren't falling asleep. We should be alert when we pray. Amen. We should pray in the morning when we're fresh and the day is ahead of us, not put off prayer until night when we are spent and the whole day is behind us. But I think Paul's getting at more here. The word he uses also has the meaning to be in constant readiness, to be on the alert. When do you need to be on the alert in life? Do you need to be on the alert? Well, always yes, but in particular, in particular. Do you need to be on the alert in times of safety or in times of danger? So, like, as a thought experiment, suppose you're camping out in the middle of the Serengeti, uh, which Wikipedia says has the largest lion population in Africa. If you're camping out in the middle of the Serengeti, would you just allow yourself to drift off to sleep with no protection, no lookout, and no secure shelter? Would you? Or, you know, aware of the fact that danger is probably lurking just out of sight, would you remain constantly ready, constantly alert? You feel me? When the Lord saves us, does he save us into peace or does he save us into war? Peacetime or wartime? What are we saved into? Paul says in Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're saved into a war. Earlier in that same letter, he speaks of the nature of how we have been saved. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He names like this unholy trinity in that statement, these, these three entities that are opposed to God, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says, following the course of this world, living in the passions of our flesh, following the prince of the power of the air. I'm going to say just a few words about each of these. First, the world. Ever since the fall, the world, its rulers and its systems have opposed God. They have opposed the Lord. They've been under the reign of the devil. He's not just like this superstitious imaginary figure. Crazy things going on around the world. People deceived about all kinds of things. That is the work of the devil. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. Jesus, having been raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, now reigns. Amen? Has he been victorious? Scripture tells us that he is presently putting all of his enemies under his feet. That there is a cosmic war that is raging in the spiritual realm. And as that war is raging, Jesus has seen fit to secure his victory, to vanquish his foes through the, prog the, the progress and the movement of his word, of the gospel. As the gospel goes forth and as Christ's church slowly and steadily grows, it breaks down the gates of hell in this age. That's what scripture says. But the world, the world has fallen. It is opposed to him. And because it's opposed to him, it's opposed to us. Paul identifies our flesh or our fallen sinful nature. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, he says, beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Those words, wage war, are those strong words or soft words? Think about the devil. What does Jesus say about him? Jesus speaks of him as a real person, a real being. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says the thief, the devil, comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Does he sound dangerous or does he sound trivial? Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. There's that word. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are also being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Can I ask you a question? How do you think that you defeat the devil when he comes knocking on your door? The same way Jesus did, right? You resist him. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't need to rebuke him. You don't need to cast him out. You don't need to do some weird exorcist stuff. You resist him. You wield the word of God. You stand on the truth to defeat the deceiver, the liar. But here's the thing, church. This is what Paul wants the Colossians to recognize. And this is what we need to recognize as equally true and valid for us today. You will not resist the devil if you do not recognize the devil. And you will not recognize the devil if you are not watching. And you will not be watching if you are not praying. If you are not praying, you are open and vulnerable to his crafty schemes. The Christian life is not like only you versus your sin. Even if it were just you versus your sin, you can't even conquer your own sin. Bible says you're a slave to it. Jesus had to conquer your sin for you. He had to break its shackles. He had to set you free. But even beyond your sin, you need to see that there are also other vastly more powerful forces at work against you. Church, we need to be aware of this reality. Today, tomorrow, you need to be watchful. So true Christian prayer is prayer that watches. Third, true Christian prayer is prayer that thanks. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Why do you think it is that Paul, in encouraging the Colossians to continue in prayer, to persevere in prayer, kind of joins together, he weds together watchfulness and thankfulness? You think that there could be something to that? You think there could be a relationship there? Do you know what thanking God does? When we thank God regularly in our prayers, it dissolves, us, it dissolves in us our sense of entitlement. Thanking God reminds us that we have no inherent right to anything that he has given to us. Thanking God reminds us that everything we are and that everything we have are ultimately gifts of mercy and alms of grace from him. That's why James writes, do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything you have, everything you are, is a function of God's grace. Notice that James says, do not be deceived. Paul says, being watchful 
I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to honestly assess yourselves. Are you ready? You ready? How easily are you deceived by the enemy? Have you ever thought about that? How easily am I deceived by the enemy? How easily are you led astray by those three forces that are at work that Paul lists in Ephesians 2? Are you confident that you are not so easily deceived? If you are confident that you're not so easily deceived, would you consider the possibility that you just might be deceived about that? Being watchful. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Friends, do we have much to be thankful for? How many of you are Christians? What is a Christian? Let's just take a minute and go back to basics. What is a Christian? If we say, I'm a Christian, we ought to have some sense of what a Christian is. Does being raised in a Christian home make you a Christian? Does studying the Bible make you a Christian? Does going to church every Sunday make you a Christian? You're right. Those are all things that Christians do, but they don't make you a Christian. What is it that makes you a Christian? What did Jesus say? John chapter 3. John chapter 3 where we read about this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a religious elite, a religious scholar. He was uh, also probably a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So he was politically positioned. He was a social elite. He was at the, the top of the social hierarchy in his day. He was, you know, a, a socialite and he was a scholar. In that encounter that he has with Jesus, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher, but the teacher. Meaning this is the guy that trains all the other guys. This is the guy whose life has been blameless if we could reckon a life blameless on, the, on account of their human effort. This is the guy you look at and you think, nobody's going to do it better. Nobody's going to observe it better. Nobody's going to learn it better. Nobody's going to teach it better. If anybody was a paradigm for meriting God's approval and acceptance on the basis of their performance, on the basis of their works, it was this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night, and he says to Jesus, Teacher, we know that God is with you because nobody could do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. And so, like, Nicodemus, the guy who represents, you know, the pinnacle, says to Jesus, I think I see who you are. You know what Jesus says to him? You don't see anything. He says to Nicodemus, doesn't even respond to Nicodemus' statements. He says instead to Nicodemus, in return, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let alone enter it. And Nicodemus starts tripping out, like, what? How, can this be? How am I going to enter a second time into my mother's womb? Right? We've read the passage. What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus, Jesus says to see the kingdom, let alone enter it, 
you have to be born again. I grew up in the 80s, and so like, I remember playing soccer with my friends, and they were all watching The Simpsons. I wasn't allowed to watch it. But I remember, you know, like there was that character in the, the, the Simpsons, there were the neighbors next door, and, you know, they were like the crazy Christians, the born-again Christians. You know what I'm talking about? What was the character's name? Stoddard. Do you remember? Flanders. Flanders. Right, Flanders, right? It's the Flanders, the crazy born-again Christians, right? Don't, don't have anything to do with those ones. They're the worst kind of Christians, born-again. Those are the really radical ones, right? Like we live in this culture where this term born-again has been maligned. It's, it's, been, it's been hijacked and misconstrued. But you know where the term comes from? It comes from Jesus. Jesus says, you must be born again. What does it mean to be Christian? It means to be born again. At the most basic, foundational, simple level. If you are a Christian truly, then you have been born again. That is according to Jesus. Let me ask you another question. How many of you have been born? Yeah, every hand should go up. Guys, that's not a hard one. That's not a hard one. Yeah, how many of you were born, right? How many of you, uh, how many of you born yourself? Doesn't make sense, right? Because you don't born yourself, you are born. It's something that happens to you, right? Yeah. Jesus, Jesus understood that the metaphor he was using for salvation, for conversion, was an image of something happening to you. Because in order for you to be a Christian, God has to move towards you first. In his mercy and in his grace, he has to condescend down to your level. He has to reach into your heart. He has to take a heart that is at enmity with him, and he has to pull it out, and he has to replace it with a heart that believes, with a heart that repents, with a heart that beats with new affections for him. Jesus says you must be born again. If you're a Christian, you have much to be thankful for because you didn't provoke your reconciliation with God. God did it for you. He made the first move. When you were his enemy, he moved towards you. When your heart was dead, he caused it to be born again. If you don't believe me, consider Paul's words in Ephesians 2. What does he say in Ephesians chapter 2? I read some of those words just a little bit earlier. Can we just revisit them quickly? I promise I'll be quick. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Hey, we're just going to stop right there. You were what? Dead. dead. You were dead. Can I ask you a question? And I don't, I don't mean this like casually. Have you ever seen a dead body? I have. I've been in ministry 10 years now. I've presided at memorials. I've seen children laying in a casket, their parents brokenhearted. It is sobering seeing a dead human being. It's unnatural. It's, it's you're, you're, the, what you expect ought to be the case collides with what you realize should not be the case. And if you've ever seen a dead human being, I want to ask you, what could that dead person do to remedy their condition? What? Nothing, right? Why? Because they're dead. That's right. By definition, one who is dead can do nothing to produce life in themselves. And what is the image that Paul uses of the Ephesian Christians and by extension us about the condition pre-conversion? He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead spiritually. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Are you with me so far? You are dead. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were unable to do anything about our condition before him, even when we were incapable of producing spiritual life in our own dead hearts, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Who did the making alive? If you are truly a Christian, who made you alive? Did you do it? Did you invite Jesus into your heart and you made yourself alive? Or did God move towards you? Did he give you a new heart? Did he cause you to be born again? Did he make you alive when you were dead? That is the gospel. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Who do, who's the worker? Who's the craftsman? We are, if we are his workmanship, who's done the work? He has, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you, have, if you are a Christian, then you have been born again. God has touched you with his grace. You've been taken from death to life spiritually. You, have, you were an enemy and you have been made an ally. Do we have much to be thankful for? If you are a Christian, then by God's mercy and his initiative, he has caused you to be born again. He has made you alive. He has set you apart. He has regenerated you. He has transformed you. He has forgiven you. He has pardoned you. He has cleansed you. He has washed you. He has redeemed you. He has reconciled you. He has adopted you. He has received you. He loves you. He has justified you. He is presently sanctifying you. And in the future when Jesus appears, he will glorify you like his own son. I want to do an exercise together. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think for just a moment about that thing in your life that nobody knows about or barely anybody knows about. I want you to think about the sin in your life that has brought you the deepest shame. Maybe it's been sin, not that you committed, but that was committed against you by somebody else. What is the thing that haunts you, that plagues you? What is that brokenness? Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's some inadequacy. But all of us have one. All of us have a sin or something, an experience that harasses us. What is that thing deep down inside that you're tempted to think is too big for Jesus? Oh, I know Jesus is big. I don't know if I believe he's that big. I don't know if I believe he'll really forgive that. I can't quite seem to be rid of it. I want to remind you who Jesus is. I'm going to read to you from chapter 1 of Colossians. This is who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is a big Jesus. And one day, fellow Christians, one day you will see that Jesus face to face. One day he will appear. One day he will stretch his arms out to you. And he will say to you, you know that thing, that thing that you tried to carry, that thing that you thought was too big for me, that sin that you thought was just too scarlet, that thing that you thought was just too much. Well, I have taken that thing. I paid for it. You are clean, and now you are mine. You know why Jesus will say that to you one day? Because he is strong, and because he is kind. Friends, do we have much to be thankful for? Thankfulness and prayer is appropriate because God is worthy of our thanks. Jesus is worthy of our thanks. His amazing deeds on our behalf warrant our thanks. But our thankfulness to God in prayers is also important because it reminds us that Jesus is not only greater than our sin, he's better than it. Jesus is better than that sin that you're tempted to go back to again. He's bigger than that sin that you're tempted to go back to again. And we need to thank God in prayer because prayer that thanks is also prayer that trusts. The more you thank God in your prayers, the more you will find naturally you are learning to trust God in your prayers. I have a confession. I am predisposed to worry. Can anybody relate? Hopefully I'm not the only person in here today who's predisposed, predisposed to worry. So I have this little, this little card taped underneath my monitor in my office here at Hope. And it's a quote from the reformer Martin Luther, another Luther quote for you. It says, pray and let God worry. Pray, Christian, and let God worry. True Christian prayer is prayer that thanks. Finally, true Christian prayer is prayer that partners. It's prayer that partners. I want you to think about this reality. What is really on our hearts comes out in our prayers. Does that make sense? Remember, Paul is writing this letter. He's in chains. He's in prison. He's probably in Rome. He's awaiting his execution. He's at the end of the line. If you were in that position, um, what would be on your heart? What would your prayer... Like, if your friends wrote to you, like, hey, you got any prayer requests? Like, yeah, I've got a few. I'm in chains. The guillotine's right out there. Things are looking grim. I've got a few prayer requests. What's on Paul's heart? Look at his prayer requests. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word and declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Here's Paul. He's at the end of the line. He's in prison in Rome. He's going to be beheaded probably. 
And what's he asked him to pray for? He says, pray for open doors for the word. Pray that I can clearly proclaim Christ. Not that he'll be released. Not that his life will be spared. Not that his circumstances would ease. What is on his heart? The glory of God. The growth of the church. Finishing well. Are those big prayers? Those lofty prayers? The things that occupy Paul's heart are the things that occupy God's heart. So often, my prayers are attempts at the reverse, right? My prayers are attempts to compel onto God's heart the things that are on my heart. But Paul's prayer request shows us a loftier way. You know, I can constantly catch myself praying for my own situation. God would protect and improve my situation in one way or another, you know. He'll protect my wife, my kids, that we would remain healthy, that God would continue to provide for our needs. All good things, amen? We should pray for those things, amen? Are you with me? So, smaller prayers are not bad prayers. I pray those kinds of prayers all the time. But how regularly, church, how regularly in our times of prayer are our hearts burdened by lofty concerns? God, Whatever you do with my life, whether health and prosperity or sickness and little, Lord, glorify yourself through my life. Bring yourself glory through my life. Bring glory to yourself, Lord, in the South Bay through our church. Lord, pour pour your spirit out in revival and bring revival in the South Bay. Open doors around me and around us that we could share the word with people and to hearts that are open and receptive. Open those doors for us, Lord. I confess that my prayers oftentimes reveal that my heart is more preoccupied with my concerns than with God's revealed concerns. But not so, Paul. Look again at how he begins verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us. So this is Paul's invitation for them to join with him in his lofty prayers. And even though he's imprisoned in Rome and they're in Colossae, uh, geographically it's probably like this though, uh, through prayer, Paul is like conscripting them into the work of the ministry with him. He's like, pray for my preaching, pray for my clarity, pray for my opportunities, pray that the word would advance. Pray for the mystery of Christ to be known to more people. This is gospel partnership through prayer. Can you see that? Does that make sense? Yes? You don't have to go to seminary to contribute to the work of the ministry. You don't even have to write or preach a sermon to advance the preaching of the gospel. You know what you can do? You can pray for me. I need it. You can pray for God's power. You can pray for God's wisdom. You can pray for God's protection. You can pray for God's strength for Zach or for Mike or for Andrew or for Nick when he and Dale go to Portland. You can pray for God to bless the preaching of the word here at Hope. You can pray that that as we preach, the word of God would go forth and accomplish in our hearts and in our minds God's intended purpose for it. Amen? You guys with me? Very quiet. 9 a.m. was very lively. You guys are harder to read. Yeah. I have this concern that a lot of the American church today is marked by, um, by this producer-consumer mindset that we kind of import from. The, we live in a consumerist, consumeristic culture, don't we? Right? Like, 
entities, people produce goods or services, we consume them, like that's foundational to our social fabric. But we've kind of like imported that unwittingly into our view of church. Like church is a place we go, they produce a service, the sermon, the, you know, the pastor, the preacher produces a sermon, I sit and I consume it, you know, if it's to my liking, like if I get something out of it, then maybe I'll stay. Eventually, you know, if I like the service that the church provides, then maybe I'll start giving and, you know, maybe even consider membership. You know what I'm saying? I think that we're affected by that mindset more than we realize. But against a producer-consumer mindset of church is what we see in Paul in the earlier church. We see a preacher-partner's relationship, not a producer-consumer relationship. Paul says, I'm preaching the word. I need you to come alongside and partner with me. I need you to pray with me. Furthermore, the church is not an organization or an entity. It is a people. Church is not a place. It is a people. We are the church. This is not the church. Amen? Now, we need to be fed when we come together. Preaching ought to build up, it ought to instruct, it ought to edify, it ought to produce an effect. But church, we also need to want to come together on Sundays, not only so that we get something out of it, not so that we feel a certain way, but also because collectively our hearts have joined together in this desire to see the gospel advance incrementally in our midst week after week. Amen? that the gospel would move forward, that it would advance in our city incrementally, week after week, that the word would be heralded, that it would affect our hearts and our minds, that we would be shaped by it, and we would go out and help shape everything else by it, little by little. You with me? You know, one of the things that, like, people hate the most, they come to church, we talk about money. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I brought my friend. Shoot, you're talking about money. Ugh, man, if only I can't brought them on a different week, right? I'm going to talk about money for a second. Do you know what Hope Chapel needs more than your money? Like, yeah, we've got to sustain an operation and blah, blah, blah. Like, your giving, your contribution, that is important. Do you know what we need more than money? We need prayer. A church that is underwritten by lots of money, but no prayer is a church that will fail. A church that is underwritten first and foremost by lofty prayers, by continual prayers, by thanking, thankful prayers, by watchful prayers. That is a church that will thrive. God will bring the money. God will supply for every need. Effective preaching is only effective because it is empowered by God himself. Amen? Amen? Let me ask you a question. Actually, no, let me tell you something. Andrew and I, you know Andrew? We have like this ritual reminder for each other before we preach. It goes like this. Uh, hey, Andrew, or hey, Mike, uh, if God could speak through Balaam's donkey, he could speak through that donkey. <laughs> and you know what that reminds us? That reminds us that it's really only God who can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. It reminds us that our preaching is not about ourselves. It's really about the one who empowers us. You know, we who preach can only do what we do because you are praying for our ministry and because God is empowering it. Friends, will you partner with us week to week in praying for the preaching of the word here at Hope? That we would not be a church that just gives, you know, trivial, feel-good, you know, moralistic, therapeutic, deistic messages that you would come here and the people would come here and they would hear the very words of God preached and preached well and powerfully. 
that God would use his word to convict hearts and to turn hearts fully towards him, that, that outsiders would go, what is going on with Hope Chapel? Like I heard my friends going there, like that weird old place up on the hill. And then they come in here and something powerful happens. They meet with God. They meet with their creator. The one through whom and for whom all things have been created. They hear his name preached. Because we've been praying. and Because we're partnered in this together. God is blessing that effort. People's hearts are changed. They're born again. Taken from death to life. Can we pray for that? Can we partner in ministry like that church? Because those are lofty prayers. And we should pray them together as partners in the gospel. Okay, so Paul has instructed them to persevere in prayer. Now I'm on to the second half of my sermon, walk in wisdom. We're going to go really fast. We're going to go really fast. So first, first command, persevere in prayer. Next command, walk in wisdom. He says in verses 5 and 6, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does true Christian wisdom look like? Well, Paul's words point us in the direction. First, true Christian wisdom is wisdom that discerns. It begins in verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Can I ask you a question? How many of you have ever won the argument but lost the person? You won the argument but you lost the person. You know what I'm talking about? The most obvious point to be made here from Paul's statement, is that we're not to be haphazard or careless or thoughtless or casual about the way we interact with the non-believing world around us. On the contrary, we're to be strategic, shrewd, careful, and thoughtful when we interact with non-believers around us. Several times in this letter, Paul has kind of propounded, he's put forward, Christ is the great mystery of God who is hidden for generations but who has now been revealed. And Paul wants those Christians to look to Jesus as the wisdom of God and say, yes, he is the pattern that I follow. If I want to live wisely as a Christian, then I must live like Jesus. I must look like him and sound like him and smell like him and taste like him. When people are around me, they ought to feel in some sense like they're around this strangely attractive person that they don't yet know. There's something I should be able to put my finger on. That's Jesus. We're to interact with the unbelieving world the way that Jesus himself did. We're to be like Jesus because we are his emissaries in this world. We're to use wisdom, and wisdom discerns. He says that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What strategic means does Paul deploy with respect to discern? How, how are we to know how we ought to answer each person? He says that it begins with grace and seasoning. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt. So when it comes to interacting with non-believers, the most immediate and the most important tool in your arsenal is your speech. Your most important tool is your tongue. People watch and people listen. So he says, you should be characterized by speech that is gracious, like Jesus was. Look what Luke says about Jesus in Luke 4. And all spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up 
as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So our speech should be gracious, like Jesus. But our speech should also be seasoned with salt. What does that mean? What does salt do? Well, it adds flavor, right? So our speech should be winsome. It should be clever. It should be inviting. It should, it should be good. Our speech should be good. Salt is also a purifying agent. It is a preservative. So our speech should function a certain way that it, it purifies conversation. It, it's, it preserves that which is good. So our speech is not only gracious, but our speech also produces an effect. It serves an end. It speaks the truth, but it doesn't slam doors. Do you feel me? Salt can sting when it's rubbed in a a wound, right? Don't rub salt in the wound. You with me? But it also prevents and preserves from decay. What did Jesus say about being salty? Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You know, people say to me all the time, Mike, our country, ah, what's happening? You know what the problem is? Christians aren't salty. That's the problem. Why do you think the church is being trampled underfoot in our culture? Jesus says... You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That should give us like real serious pause for self-examination as his people today. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to add flavor. We are to preserve. We are to bring truth. We are to have an effect, not be unconsequential. Does that make sense? But next, true Christian wisdom is wisdom that redeems. It makes the most of every opportunity. Paul says, making the best use of the time. When he says making the best use of the time, he's using a word that literally means to buy out of. Redeeming the time means to buy the time out of its captivity to evil. We're to use all of our time for good. Each moment, God gives to us how many times? Once. He gives it to us one time. We're to capitalize on each moment. Not a moment wasted as his people. We're to look at our lives and we should see moment after moment joined together in a long series of faithful moments. And remember, Paul's writing this. He's in chains, right? He's shackled up in prison like waiting for the executioner. But what is he doing? He's redeeming the time. He's a good steward of the times in his life. He's making the best use of the time that God has given to him. You are going to do many important things with your time and with your life. You will work. You will achieve. You will progress. You will grow. You will eat. You will drink. You will sleep. You will wake. You will live. You will recreate. You will cry and mourn. And you will rejoice. And you will also be glad. But the most important and most significant thing that you can do with your time, moment to moment, is to seek to redeem it for the sake of Christ. Don't waste another moment especially with regard to outsiders, because true Christian wisdom is wisdom that redeems the time. Are you ready to conclude? Finally, true Christian wisdom is wisdom that engages. It engages. Paul says, answer each person. Answer each person. I know we need to kind of get over the final hump here, so I'm going to help get us there with a, a movie illustration. How many of you watched one of my all-time favorite movies, Top Gun. 
Yeah. So what happens in Top Gun, right? Maverick uh, loses his co-pilot. He loses Goose to a tragic aviation accident. He mourns. He goes into, you know, a personal tailspin. You fast forward to the end of the movie, and he's conscripted back into active duty. He's, he's called to, to fly and to fight. And so we see Maverick back in his flight suit, back in his F-14. He launches from the aircraft carrier. He's airborne. He's going supersonic. He's headed straight for the fight. He's got a new co-pilot behind him. His weapons are armed. They're ready. His friends are in trouble. His confidence is shaken. His body was in the flight, but his head wasn't in the fight, right? And so what do you hear? Oh, it's no good. It's no good. He's saying to himself. And his commanding officer back on the naval vessel and the aircraft carrier is like, Maverick, engage, engage. His fellow pilots who are, you know, getting shot at by MiG-28s everywhere, Maverick, engage. There's a battle raging around you. You can't just pretend that it's not. I think the truth is more often than not, we're like Maverick. We're intimidated. We're lacking in confidence. Maybe we are on alert. Whatever the reason is, we just don't engage. Paul says, answer each person. To answer is to engage. I hate to break it to you, but the Christian life is not a life on the sidelines. It's a life in the game. The Christian life is not a life outside of the battle. It's a life right smack in the center in the heat of battle. You cannot live the Christian life and just remain neutral with outsiders. You need to engage. And you need to engage in the battle the same way Jesus engaged in the battle. And the absolute best description of Jesus and how he engaged the battle is in the beginning of John's gospel where John writes this. One of the most beautiful things said about Jesus in all of scripture. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace, full of truth. Two of the most salient qualities of Jesus. Being full of grace, Jesus is willing to stand in our place. He's willing to take a step towards us when we are his enemies. He's willing, being full of grace, to take our punishment upon himself, to give to us freely also in exchange his perfect righteousness. He does all the heavy lifting, gives us the benefit. We do all the sinning. He takes it upon himself. That is grace, full of grace. But being full of truth, Jesus loves us enough to confront our sin, to speak the truth, and to call us to himself in repentance and in faith. And if we're going to be salty Christians, then we must engage, and we must engage with grace and with truth. Truth offends. People don't like truth. We live in an age and in a culture which has said we've moved beyond any idea that there's objective truth. We don't need to make truth more offensive than it is, Amen. And that is why we are called as Jesus' people to carry forward the truth about him with grace. We are to be people of the truth because Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All truth belongs to him, by the way, irrespective of the type of truth it is. It doesn't matter if it's spiritual truth, mathematical truth, political truth. All truth proceeds from him. He is the principium. He is the reference point. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. Amen? 
We're to be people of the truth because he is the truth, but we're also to be people full of grace because he is full of grace. If truth offends, let it offend. If we offend, then we have lacked grace. We must be full of grace and full of truth. And all through the gospel accounts, you read the Bible, you read the gospels, and you see Jesus always simultaneously flexing these two muscles as he deals with sinners. He's always flexing the muscle of spiritual, moral, and ethical conviction, truth, when he calls sinners to repentance. But he is always simultaneously flexing the muscle of compassion because he's full of grace. He cares about the sinner. That's why he moves towards the sinner. He cares about you. That's why he moved towards you. But he was full of truth, and that's why when he moved towards you, he calls you to turn and to repent. And in all, like, you know, the landscape of modern Christianity, we see distortions of Jesus. Here's two very clear ones. One distortion of Jesus is all grace, no truth, Jesus. And all grace, no truth, Jesus produces weak Christians. Then there's all truth, no grace, Jesus, which produces mean Christians, neither of which look like or sound like or lead to Jesus. Then there's the real Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. And you know what he produces? Salty Christians. And so if we're to engage outsiders as Jesus engaged us, church, we must always remember that he is strong and he is kind. When we forget that Jesus is strong, we make ourselves Lord over him. When we forget that Jesus is kind, we are then too afraid to come to him in our times of need. But Jesus is not weak. He is strong and he is full of truth. And Jesus is not mean. He is kind and he is full of grace. And he calls each of us to come to him. And when he calls us to come to him, he calls us to engage, to engage others and to bring them to him with us. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.